0: Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host Jonah Sutton Morse.
1: It can be a little bit frightening and and also thrilling to be just surrounded by the past and, and to realize how how other it is.
0: My guest this episode is Kate Hartfield. She is a journalist and fiction writer in Ottawa, Canada. Her Shakespearean fantasy novella, The Course of True Love, is out now from Abaddon Books as part of the Monstrous Little Voices collection. Her short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction, Escape Pod, and elsewhere. She's represented by Jenny Golaby. Her website is hartfieldfiction.com, and she is on Twitter as at Kate Hartfield. We are going to talk... This evening about general history with the genre, as we often do, and a bit about historical fantasy and lots of different writers, some of whom I have read, and at least one of whom it is to my great shame that I still haven't gotten to, so maybe maybe you will push me over the edge. But let's start with some of your history with the genre. How did you come to science fiction and fantasy? Has it been smooth and steady sailing, or have you been more and less connected to it?
1: Yeah, it's been there my whole life as a reader. That's always been what I read. And for the most part, it's what I've written as well. You know, in my 20s, I kind of took some time away from it as a writer. I was focusing mostly on journalism and on sort of realistic fiction and, and uh, you know, going to go off and write the great Canadian novel. And then I came back to it hardcore as a writer in my 30s. i I'm I'm 39 now. Um but as a reader it's it's always been the thing that attracted me the most from when I was a little kid uh back to the uh the hobbit days um that was my beginning I think as uh, as for many people
0: Mhm Were there any other particular books that were important to you was it was it weekly trips to the library or stuff that was around the house
1: Yeah absolutely I mean we went to the Winnipeg public library downtown and, uh, my mom and I used to go and, uh, come away with, you know, sack loads of books. Uh, and we had a lot of books in the house too. So yeah, I was one of those voracious readers as a kid. Um, and definitely a lot of fantasy. The Hounds of the Morrigan by Pattaché was one of my very favorite books. And I've, I've blogged about that a few times and the influence that book had on me and science fiction as well. I mean, Dune was very formative. For me and and Tolkien. I'm one of those people who's read Lord of the Rings,
0: you know, 30 times or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which how, how many copies have you owned?
1: Uh, I've, I'm on my second paperback trilogy set now, the the box set. So I still have the first one, but it's not really readable. But I can't bear to part with it, you know. So yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's there on my shelf with all my my nice books, even though it looks you know like a ratty old thing because I knew we were going to talk about uh, historical fantasy, I was thinking, too, that a lot of the books that I read as a kid, you know, I read both Susan Cooper's Arthurian books and I read Rosemary Secliffe's Arthurian books. And, you know, one of those is classified as fantasy and one of them is classified as historical fiction. But I think as a kid, I didn't really see the difference between them. You know, and maybe that's why that crossed genre has always made so much sense to me is that um, a lot of the historical tales and folk tales that I read as a kid uh, didn't seem any separate separate at all to me mm-hmm. from from the science fiction
0: yeah I, d- I don't know setcliffe at all I remember Susan Cooper you're thinking of like the dark is rising sequence right yeah that one I remember having a lot of magic and but I guess mm-hmm. now that I'm thinking of other Arthurian stories There is plenty of other things like knights getting their heads chopped off and then saying, all right, I'll be back in a year to see you.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: So yeah, historical fantasy. It sounds like that has been for you an important, kind of an important theme throughout. You mentioned Susanna Clark and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell is the book that I feel like I should have read by now, and yet I just never have fabulous i've heard so many good things about the language i've heard that it has footnotes it just it sounds delightful and yet i think i saw it and then i saw that it was so popular with so many people and i got a little bit Mm. snobbish and i said i'm gonna you know find the obscure things instead of that and it sounds like i missed the boat so many of the authors and titles that you that you mentioned originally susanna clark joe walton De bedard zen cho they are currently writing now and i mean Elliot is her house of shattered wings which i really enjoyed is set in sort of early 20th century alternate paris sorcerer of the crown also relatively recent um although i guess not what that's a couple hundred years earlier right are there things that, are, that you see going on in historical fantasy right now that seem interesting to you you know, there's a few different
1: threads, put it
0: that way. There's a, a very interesting
1: thread of alternate history. Things like the Yiddish Policeman's Union and uh, Joe Walton's Barthing books. And and I guess Elia de Bedard's House of Shattered Wings is, is an alternate Paris, you know. And so there's that reimagining what might have been, uh, has always been a really strong thread with historical fantasy. And even some people can even manage to pull off historical science fiction and steampunk. So I think that that's one really strong thread. And I think that that's just going to keep going strong because I think that, you know, we're always learning how to understand our history. And I think that the genre really help do that because it is a, it's a genre of imagination and imagination brings so much to bear on our understanding of history. You know, if you look at the popularity of the musical Hamilton right now, and you can see how retelling a story in a new way mm-hmm. uh, really brings that history to life you know, and, and a lot of people would say that that's alternate history. I mean, that's an arguable point. But I mean, there's there's a lot in that, uh, in that that's obviously, you know, been elided and, and and changed a little bit.
0: Yeah, I definitely I find myself enjoying Hamilton, as kind of Hamilton and as the way that it is reimagined and the way it is an introduction for my four year old into these stories and these characters. But not at all finding myself thinking I want to go back and find out more about the historical figure or more about the historical time period because then I'll be reminded of all of the other aspects.
1: Right. Yeah, it's hard to get past some of the the simplifications and that kind of thing. You know, being Canadian, I didn't know a whole lot about Hamilton himself, but, you know, I happened to know a little bit about Lafayette, for example, and so I had to kind of compartmentalize what I knew <laughs> about the actual person and just enjoy this over-the-top character. But on the other hand, I do think that this, this kind of reimagining, and, and in film we see it a lot, Sophia Coppola's film Marie Antoinette really used anachronism to try and and bring that story closer to our mm-hmm. times. And so I think we see that a lot in in prose as well. This or or we could see more of that this bringing historical stories closer to us through creative use of language. And I think that because the genre does kind of open up the mind to imagining things that that is a really interesting way to do it. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think, obviously, the other really wonderful, heartening trend, you know, you mentioned Sorcerer for the Crown and House of Shattered Wings. And I mean, one wonderful thing that we're seeing is seeing Europe as it was, you know, instead of <laughs> how uh, this, this sort of bastion of, of white people that stories have always shown it to be. So I think showing the actual diversity in history is it's a fairly new thing. I mean, obviously, there have always been some people who have done it, but Uh, that seems to be getting more and more common, which is great.
0: So there are two aspects to historical fantasy. One is the the fantasy part that I think we've we've talked about a little bit. And I'm guessing we will circle back to the other is the historical part. And I know, oh, I, I was having a Twitter conversation a little while ago with someone who writes historical fiction, she does not write historical fantasy. And so for her she mentioned that at one point, she had misplaced a castle by a 100 miles. And Mm -hmm. that she had gotten comments and feedback and all sorts of people saying this is ridiculous, this is incorrect, you got it wrong. And that the placement of this castle, which was not even a key, it was key to the plot point, but was not sort of a key element of the book was was really, really essential to the fans. And I don't read a whole lot of historical fantasy. And when I do, it is areas that I don't know a whole lot about. So in much the same way that I like watching Hamilton for Hamilton and what Hamilton is saying and the ways that it's using these historical figures and and reimagining them. But I know there are some people who are really invested in the historical aspects of things. Do you tend to read things that you have background on in terms of in terms of knowing some of the historical details? I'm curious what the historical piece of that means for you.
1: I'm pretty forgiving when it comes to the little details. And and for the most part, I find actually that writers that do write historical fiction, I mean, they're doing it because they love that setting and they love that period. And they tend to be people who enjoy research or else they just, you know, use a secondary world or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm hmm. It, it doesn't often happen that I rub up against something that is just, you know, blatantly wrong or poorly researched. You know, maybe I've just been lucky that way. So for the most part, it doesn't bother me. And I do think that writers who use anachronism tend to be using it on purpose. And so you can kind of see, okay, well, they're doing this in that way of of bringing the story forward. You know, one of my favorite movies, and I always feel a little guilty admitting it, is A Knight's Tale, the Heath Ledger <laughs> Canterbury Tales mm-hmm. movie, which is ridiculous. You know, because the, I mean, the musical choices are blatantly anachronistic, and and the clothing and everything else, but it's done on purpose, and you can see that, and you can just say, okay, I'm gonna roll with this, fine. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of writers do that as well, and and when they're doing that, it doesn't bother me at all. And the historical aspect of it, then, I think, is that idea of bringing out the strange in humanity's own past, which I find really fascinating. You know, I mean, I do read secondary world fantasy as well, Mm -hmm. but to me. The, the thrill of a historical novel is that you realize just how weird, you know, the real world is because, it's, you know, the weird stuff, I was working on a, a fantasy, a fantasy novel, um, it's not published yet, maybe one day, but I was working on a fantasy novel set in 18th century London and I kept coming across these details that were so weird. I never could have invented them. You know, the fact that women used to wear eyebrows made of mouse fur, for example. And you think, you know, <laughs> I would never invent such a thing. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's the thing that I love. And, and the other example of that that always comes to mind is in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, but it's a footnote, so it's no spoiler. Uh, but there's this footnote about Jonathan Strange moving the roads in Europe around the time of the Battle of Waterloo so that the opposing enemy would get lost. And that's a reference to a time when there's one part of, I guess it was the French army that was just kept going back and forth between two different battlefields and never actually fought because of conflicting orders and the real reason was just bureaucracy and and because these you know two generals or something couldn't get it together and and so the in real life this army just kept going back and forth and that is weirder than a magician moving the roads around you know the right. fact that bureaucracy could stop an army from fighting you know so i think that's what kind of appeals to me about it is that it kind of juxtaposes our imagination with how strange our world actually is
0: we're going to take a break now for spring short fiction reviews from Charles Paysour. Hello! It's springtime, and for many that means
2: coming out of winter hibernation, or porper Green is a concept and sensation again, and all you really want to do is kill and devour the nearest thing you can find. Or, wait, is that right? Nah, whatever. What I mean to say, I guess, is that spring seems a great time to look at a genre that isn't always talked an awful lot about in SFF, to the point that it's not even in that wonderful abbreviation, horror. And more specifically, I want to talk about horror tropes. Because, you see, speculative horror is one of those genres that can be differentiated from the rest of SFF, mostly by feeling. A story is horror because of the feelings it evokes, the dread and fear, that it makes the reader experience as much as anything else. But there are also things that can clue a reader into the fact that a piece is horror, or horror. And the interesting thing is that a lot of the tropes of horror come not from written horror but from films. The idea of the horror movie is one that typically follows a very standard formula. These two have been pulled from the literary tradition but also have taken on a life of their own in movies and that in turn has bled back into the stories we tell. It's a wonderful cyclic discussion that genre often has with itself and I think that horror demonstrates quite well. For today's fiction recommendations I want to point out some recent stories from late 2016 and early 2017 that I feel have a lot to say in conversation with horror and tropes and are just otherwise good reads. The first story is Four Haunted Houses by Adam Troy Castro from Nightmare Magazine, September 2016. It's a story that's very aware of the various ways that houses and hauntings can be portrayed in horror, and it moves through four instances of haunted houses, showing the different ways that we can imagine and treat with such a simple concept in very complex ways. The story is told to the reader who is pulled into these situations, these hypothetical hauntings, and the tropes of the genre are front and center, the unsuspecting nuclear family finding there are things they're not prepared for, that they cannot face. In some ways, the story seems to ask which haunting is more horrifying, which more dangerous, which more unsettling. It doesn't offer an answer so much as it takes the reader on a tour of possible hells and wonders idly which the reader might end up in. There's a lingering threat to the piece from the uncertainty, that almost casual view of pain and hurt that these hauntings can cause. Much more actively subversive to the tropes of horror, though, are a pair from just this March. The first The Girl Who's Going to Survive Your Horror Movie by Barbara A. Barnett from Flash Fiction Online. It imagines a woman not so much being stalked by a killer, though there's that as well, as stalked by a genre. It's the personification of horror movies itself which is chasing her, trying to force her into the familiar trappings of a slasher movie. At every turn, she and her friends are pushed into engaging with horror to become its next victim, and yet the main character refuses to submit, refuses to play by the rules of horror. The result is a rather fun and funny piece that still manages to get at how horror tropes can feel pointed at times entertainment, but entertaining because they make the dominant comfortable at the expense of the marginalized. That breaking the pattern of horror, refusing to give it space, is showing it to be like a tantruming child insisting on its own importance and supremacy. But the tropes, as the story points out, are fairly easy to spot, and often very easy to avoid when they're not being forced on. you. The other March piece is If We Survive the Night by Carly St. George from The Dark Magazine, and this story... Well, aside from being one of my favorite from March, and from 2017 so far, it does an amazing job of directly confronting the tropes of horror. Again, the slasher movie, horror more specifically, and showing how they reinforce the abuse and marginalization of women, people of color, queers, and many more. Far from being about the dangers of random psychopathic violence, the story shows that the real threat is from normalizing the murder of women. The insistence that a woman who is good enough who is somehow pure enough will survive, that she will win, that she will fight back in the right way or be saved or something. The result of which is to say that anyone who finds themselves a victim in some way deserves it. Hear the women of horror stories. Those who aren't the final girl, the good girl, are punished for dying, are punished again and again and gaslit and told essentially that they have to deserve not being murdered, that they have to convince men or angels but Really, it's men they're being forced to perform for, that they are sorry for being killed. It's a gut punch of a story that offers an amazing narrative voice that flows from woman to woman, creating a chorus of victims whose stories have been taken by the genre, by the tropes, and who are figuring out how to take their stories back. In a similar vein, The Venus Effect by Joseph Allen Hill from Lightspeed's December 2016 tells a story about a person trying to write a story. I'll admit, that this is sort of a cheat, because the story isn't horror specifically, but at the same time it has a lot of that feel, that the main character is also being stopped, but that the specter that's haunting them is the tropes of all SFF, and beyond that, of the lurking reality that doesn't allow for black people to escape to some place better, to escape into a fantasy. At every turn, there is always a bullet to bring the narrator of the story back to prevent them from writing something free of pain or injustice. At every turn, the narrator finds that they are pushed back into a box, back towards their own death and extinction. They cannot write about spaceships or superpowers because, again, that doesn't reinforce what the dominant want to believe and promote. The story subverts tropes by showing how they are closed to so many people, how they are used along racial lines, and for those who aren't supposed to To be in certain roles, to step outside of expectation carries a great risk. It's a story, too, that directly confronts the reader with the weight of these tropes and with the reality that the tropes inveigle. It's a difficult piece at times, but a beautiful one, and one worth grappling with, especially because it's one that directly engages with the reader and asks the reader a question at the end that they have to come to terms with. And last up is None of This Ever Happened by Gabriela Santiago from Lightspeed's People of Color Destroy Horror, a story that features a writer coming into contact with the horror they write about, imagining a scenario that steamrolls out of control as the pressure to perform and produce become all-consuming. The story is another that evokes many of the tropes of horror, and like some of the other pieces, the main characters are wa- aware Uh, on a rather metal level about these tropes. And yet that doesn't make them safe. There's a paranoia here that, a bit like the Venus effect, isn't there to seem unreasonable or establish the the narrator isn't mentally sound. Because while that's the trope in, in horror, it's one that's rooted in dismissing the fact that some people have to be paranoid, that some people have to always be aware. Because the penalties for not following the rules can be intense. It's a wonderfully strange story, too, where the relationship between the narrator and character and writer and reader are never entirely clear, never comfortable. It's a great way to complicate the tropes of horror, to take these things that are supposed to make us feel happily aware of what's going on and then twisting them into new nightmares. And really what all of these stories do is approach the way that horror reflects the fears of society while also reinforcing many of the harm society does. Why are there so many of these psycho-killer males and final girls, women? Horror doesn't really care in most of its iterations. It just wants to focus on the fear. These stories do a nice job of pulling out from just the fear and looking at the reasons why. At the corruption, at the heart of what makes this horror entertaining for the dominant, at least, and affirming for them while at the same time being rather harmful and at many times conflicting to other marginalized groups who enjoy horror who want to enjoy horror. So yeah, definitely check out these stories, and until next time, this has been Charles Pacey.
0: Now we'll return to my interview with Kate and the uneven distribution of historical fantasy.
1: You know, I think there's a lot of untapped territory that's uh, that's just out there because we have these sort of sub sub genres of historical fiction we have you know the regency romance and now we have you know the regency romance fantasy you know and and, and that kind of thing and so each of these little pockets that become familiar to readers but there are other periods in in history where we don't have a whole lot of novels especially fantasy novels written about them yet there are some periods in time or some groups of people that just seem fantastical. And so you can see why writers are drawn to them. You know, I really love Tim Powers, his books on um, the pre-Raphaelite artists and and writers, uh, The Stress of Her Regard and Hide Me Amongst the Graves. You know, because Dante Gabriel, Rossetti, Byron, you know, all these guys in the 19th century, they were they were sort of by their very nature, the, the stuff that you make weird gothic horror <laughs> stories out of, you know. I mean, Rossetti exhuming his wife's coffin to get a book of poetry out you know is just ridiculous and so again it's it's the sort of stuff where I mean I think Tim Powers himself has even said that he didn't feel like he was inventing so much with those books as finding all the weird bits and then finding an explanation to make them all make sense and link them together because you know you had mad poets wandering around convinced they'd seen dead people and and you know it was just all there to be written so I think there are some periods in history and some groups of people that you look at it and you think there's got to be some other something yeah, else going something on here. Must
0: have been. <laughs> I might as well give it magic because aliens would make right. it science fiction instead.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Thinking a little bit more about sort of familiar genres and familiar subgenres, I feel like I just finished putting out the episode. Of course, it will have aired long ago by the time this one does. But about different interpretations of and ways to push back against kind of the the narrative of a Pan-Asia and a fantastical Pan-Asia in the ways that Grace of Kings and House of Shattered Wings, among others, do that. And I i feel like there are probably a lot of advantages to picking a time period that other people have already written about because your readers are going to... I mean, readers are going to bring a lot of expectations to Regency books at this point and, and probably also a lot of familiarity. And so, especially because so many of those rely on the... The manners and the comedy of manners and the way people were expected to interact with each other, it's probably easier for an author not to have to establish that quite as much. I wonder if you've, if you can think of any books that, that kind of struck out away from some of the more expected subgenres and if, if there's any, any extra work it felt like they had to do in order to sort of situate the reader in the, in the time period.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One that comes to mind is My Name is Red by Orhan Pamuk, the Turkish author, which I don't think gets categorized uh, in fantasy bookshelves very much because, you know, he's a literary author, but it's very much, you know, there are parts of the book that are narrated by objects and narrated by ghosts and all the rest of it. So it's definitely magical realism, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and it's it's in 16th, I guess it's the Ottoman Empire. And, and um, you know, so that that book I found... You know it was it was not a terribly familiar setting to me. I don't think I had read you know anything quite like it before. I'm thinking back to what what the techniques were. I mean, I do remember it being very richly described and And so I think that when readers are going for a book like that with a setting that they're not terribly familiar with, they are looking for that sense of immersion in a new place, you know, much as you would in a secondary world fantasy or a science fiction book, mm-hmm. you know, especially a like a space opera, you know you're looking for a writer who can show you a new world and or a world that you haven't seen before and so that i think is maybe a different thing than saying okay well i'm going to write a regency for readers who read regencies and they they know the score you know uh, which is absolutely fine in and of itself you know i mean i read cozy mysteries and and i don't need an introduction to you know a sort of edwardian england or 1930s england or something i i don't need you to sort of draw me into that and that's not why i'm reading it you know right so I think that, that there are kind of two different skill sets there and, and that sense of immersion in, in a, a world that's might as well be created, I think, for many readers uh, is a skill to pull off. Mm-hmm.
0: Although oh, you've got interesting facts, like <laughs> I'm still laughing about wearing eyebrows with mouse fur. I realize that may <laughs> exactly. not be apl- applicable to, me, to my name is Red, but.
1: Yeah, no, that's the thing, and sometimes sometimes the, the settings that you think you know, um, a good writer can kind of show you that, well, in fact, you know, not so much.
0: I'd have to imagine that some of some of what's going on with at least some of the people who are choosing something like Regency is is kind of saying, Let's reimagine, or in Zencho's case, let's imagine a little bit of a of a bigger and more inclusive space for the Regency um stories than than had been previously imagined.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, nothing's ever been done to death. You know, I mean, steampunk is a really good example of this. I mean, I don't read a whole lot of steampunk, but I do read some and, and it's one of those subgenres that, you know, people keep declaring dead. We've had it and then we've had the sort of counter movement and we've had the criticisms. And, but I think there's, it just sort of keeps being reborn in new ways and, uh, writers keep finding new angles onto that aesthetic.
0: Yeah. Are there any that you you see being explored more now or that that seem kind of ripe for exploration to you? I feel like I've seen a few different things that seem to be looking back at the American Western and trying to mm-hmm. really imagine and explore that.
1: I, I do think there's a lot to be done with North America. My friend Tex Thompson has, a, has some wonderful books that are uh, not exactly historical fantasy, but they're very much inspired. Secondary world fantasy using North America rather than Europe. As a model, mm-hmm. I think it would be great to have more indigenous writers telling indigenous stories uh, of North America. And uh, I'm sure there are a lot out there that I'm not familiar with, but I think that you could have a lot more. And so that's that's one of those big untapped areas of territory, I think. So, I mean, there's that. And, and there's, I think, you know, Europe is obviously overrepresented in historical fantasy there's a lot of I don't know what the word is I I want to say pseudo historical fantasy but that sounds more derogatory than I mean it to be but historical fantasy that is you know like Guy Gabriel K's China that isn't China Mm-hmm. fairy world fantasy that is obviously
0: inspired by
1: a particular time and place in our own history mm-hmm. so, you know there's a, a little bit of that out there as well
0: yeah and I guess that that kind of brings me to we've been we've been saying historical fantasy and I think. There's a pretty clear sort of subgenre of regency historical fantasy and then there are lots of fuzzy edges as always happens. There's this huge amount of pseudo medieval stuff out there, but I'm also thinking like Jemison's Dreamblood duology, which was inspired and I don't I don't know quite how much or how loosely by ancient Egypt and do people who start talking about historical fantasy and who say that they're really enthusiastic about historical fantasy, does it does it start to matter how much it's a recognizable place in the world? Is it important that you be able to say something like Paris or some other kind of real world city as part of that or or, or loosely inspired by a culture and time period?
1: Probably a couple of different kinds of reader. I tend to like it all. You know, I mean, I like reading books that teach me about a history that i haven't heard before. Um so i will i'll pick that up and and be perfectly happy. But i do think there are readers who wouldn't think of themselves as historical fantasy readers but do like for example roman fantasy, you know, they mm-hmm. they want to read about gladiators, they want to read about generals and so they might read that or or as we've said there are people who read regency or there are people who really want, you know, a sort of Tudor era, they want Philippa Gregory with fantasy, you know, that kind of thing. So i think there are probably people who do who do read according to period and, you know, maybe would not be so open to some time and place that, that they hadn't read before.
0: I wonder if there is a book or a moment in a book that you can think of that, that made you say, this is why I really like this genre.
1: Yeah. I think there's something, there's something a bit spooky about it, or there can be, you know, I mean, there's this book uh, you know, speaking of paperbacks that I've, I've read until they fall apart, there's Playing Beattie Bow by Ruth Park, which is a young adult time travel novel set in Australia. And I read that book over and over when I was a kid. And it is quite, I mean, it's not, it's not a scary book. It's not a horror book, but there's just something really frightening about, uh, you know, this teenage girl has this bit of old lace and she sews it onto her dress and she wakes up in, you know, extremely poor Sydney. Uh, in the 19th century, it's just terribly frightening. It, she Ruth Park does this wonderful job of putting you in that position of, of being just terrified and in this Dickensian world all of a sudden, and uh, just the atmosphere of it. And so I think that ability that a book can have to sort of grab onto that magical feeling about the past, you know, I mean, sometimes you get, I find anyway, that if I'm walking through a museum or something. Mm hmm. You know, you can kind of get this this kind of chill. You know, this sort of feeling, Um and it's it's just it can be a little bit frightening and and also thrilling to be just surrounded by the past and and to realize how how other it is, you know. And even though it's the same streets that you walk down every day, and so that's always really really fascinated me.
0: Yeah, I want to follow up for a second. Just the thought of like the kind of eerie what if it occurs to me that there's probably something comforting about secondary world and then, and then historical fantasy and you go to like a museum or, or you hear a story about two different armies marching back and forth because they're, they're getting conflicting orders and, and there are plenty of, of mysteries out there and, and podcasts exploring the mysteries that are out there. And I, I, I wonder if there is an extent to which part of historical is, or part of the appeal of it might be that like maybe it, it's kind of breaking down ba- boundaries in a way that secondary world doesn't. And it's a little a little more transgressive or, or letting us imagine that maybe the truth is out there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of, you know, it's the sort of creepiness in in children's rhymes and and folk stories and that sort of thing, you know. I mean, it's, you know, my six-year-old laughs at me because I read him, Rumpelstiltskin, the story, and I always say, oh, you know, this story used to scare me so much when I was a kid. And, and he'll say, Mom, it's not scary at all, <laughs> you know. <laughs> nothing scary about Rumpelstiltskin. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, he watches yeah. Harry Potter and, you know, so. Um, but to me, yeah, there was just always something so terrifying, yeah in a in a wonderful way about that story and so yeah, there's just these little little threads in history you know that um uh that sort of niggle at you and you can't get rid of and and it is closer to home, it is more disquieting in some ways than you know a secondary world in that sense, you know although as I say there are lots of writers who you know their, their secondary worlds are
0: obviously uh
1: pretty close to home as well, if you know what I mean <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, and what I can do to make the show better. The website also has a link to the RSS feed for the show, which you can also find on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next
1: time, enjoy your reading.